All right, John chapter 6. If you're new with us for the first time, thanks for being here. Glad you're here. Uh, we just work through books of the Bible, paragraph at a time, and whatever it says, we explain it, we apply it, and we point ourselves to Jesus week after week after week. And the cumulative effect of doing that changes us. We behold Him week after week after week, and we become like him. Tonight, I trust, will be no different. Uh, in some ways, it is a continuation of what we saw last week, but that passage was so long, it didn't make sense to try to do it all at once. So we'll have some similar themes, uh, some similar ideas, some similar things to wrestle with and be encouraged by. And we know that the Spirit is going to help us. So let's go ahead and jump in right here in verse 41. It says, So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread <coughs> that came down from heaven. They said, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now let's unpack this. First thing, the Jews. What he's talking about there, he's not being anti-Semitic or anything off the wall there. He's simply talking about this group of Jews that were troublesome to Jesus throughout uh, this group that was within the large group that he had been feeding, and, and they were against him and, and troublesome to him even in this passage tonight. And you can see the issue that they have with what he says there is twofold. Number one, they didn't like the fact that he said he was the bread that came down from heaven. <coughs> First of all, we'll see a little bit of that in just a bit. They don't understand this bread concept at all. But second, they really don't like the fact that he said he came down from heaven. Because in their view, Jesus was not who he said he was. He wasn't the Messiah. Couldn't wrap their heads around that, so he's a blasphemer. So how dare this guy say that he is the bread that came down from heaven? That's problem number one. Problem number two is the fact that they knew his family, his earthly family. They grew up with Jesus, so to speak. And therein, I think, gives us a principle and a half. Let me give it to you like this. The first one is this. <coughs> Jesus and his work has always had and will always have its detractors. Always been problems. When the word of God was proclaimed, the truth of God that was revealed, you see it in the garden, you see it in the Old Testament, you see it right here with Jesus, you see it today. But then also, this is kind of a colloquial side principle I'd give you. Sometimes the people who watch you grow up have a hard time understanding what God is up to in your life. Some of you in this room can tell this story. You've tried to witness to your family members. You've tried to talk to your parents, your nephews, your cousins, whoever. And, oh, I knew when you were whatever. And they have a hard time laying hold of what you are now by the grace of God. I wish that weren't the case, but that is often the reality. And Jesus is getting his own dose of that in them saying, we know his parents. Who does this guy think he is coming out here telling us he's the bread from heaven of all places? And so I think when we see that in the life of Jesus, it helps explain some of what's about to happen. <coughs> and we also understand that no servant is above his master. And in this world and in this life and in this gospel ministry, all of us cannot be surprised when the same happens. 
But Jesus tackles the problem head on. Look at verse 43. It says, Jesus answered them, do not grumble against yourselves. So instead of answering their objection, trying to give a proof for who he is, he's kind of not doing that at the moment. He's already done that repeatedly. He'll do more later in the book. But he specifically addresses and rebukes their grumbling. This is very reminiscent of the pattern in the Old Testament, the pattern that we can often fall into, which none of us want to admit, but all of us are guilty of. And then what does Jesus do? He gets extremely theological in verse 44 and following. And he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. (coughs) So two principles there. Number one, No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And number two, Jesus promises to raise up all who call on him on the last day. Now, the second one is actually going to need less explanation, so let's actually start with that one. He's talking about the resurrection in the end. He's talking about the hope that we have in Jesus. That when this body dies and serves its purpose and returns to us, one day, if our faith and trust is in Christ, we will get a new model, far better than this one that has been recalled many times, and one that will last forever. There's a hope eternal in what Jesus is saying here. And I was thinking about that a great deal this week. (coughs) As most of you know, Tim Keller, pastor, author, had an impact on so many of us in this room, almost all of us, I would presume. Very huge influence on my thinking, preaching, same for David. Uh, actually had the chance to meet the man once in person, he was just as you thought he would be, personable, friendly, normal. And one of the things that I was struck by in this last week of his life is he was talking about it, it seems like there was some kind of exchange there right before he entered hospice, and, and, and his decline was very precipitous and quick there. But he basically said, you could tell what was between the lines of the quote, just send me home. I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. And even reading that tweet, I think it was from his son, I kind of got choked up just reading the tweet. Usually I cry when I look at Twitter for another reason or I want to throw my phone, but this time was good. And I just had that longing in my heart that if I was in that same place, oh, that I would want to say what he said. Part of the reason he could say what he said, the way he said it, at the time he said it, was because he believed this, that Jesus would raise him up on the last day. And that same hope that Tim had is available to all of us today. And if your faith and trust is in Christ, (coughs) he will raise you up on the last day. So you can face death without fear. You can face life without fear. Because he will indeed raise us up on the last day. Take heart in that, friends. Be encouraged in that, friends. The Lord is with us even to the end. Now... Let's go back and get this uh, heavier log that Jesus has thrown on the fire here. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And what he's talking about there, he's talking about being able to come to Christ in the sense that being saved, being drawn in, 
And of course, the gospel call, the preaching of the gospel, should and does go to everyone. Part of the reason why we're still here on the planet is to tell everyone that we can, man, woman, boy, and girl, every way that we can, that Jesus will save them if they turn to him. And what he's kind of given here is kind of the backstory, the background, what's the operating system running in the background of how that happens on the backside of things. On the front side of things, when the gospel is proclaimed, we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus. On the back end of things, it only people that God has drawn to himself are going to do that. And you might say, Dustin, that's tough. How, how can that be? How can it be a general call to everybody and then only those that have been chosen, that have been drawn, some might use the word the elect, are going to respond to that good news? And I would say that is mysterious. And just like we said last week when this came up in the passage, there's a lot to think through here. But without getting too far deep down that rabbit hole, let me say it like this, and perhaps this will help. I do not consider this to be the final word on the matter, nor has church history for the past 2,000 years of people been trying to sort this mystery out. But I would kind of say it like this. Only those that the Father is drawing are truly going to want to put their faith in Jesus. So anyone can be saved, but only those that God is drawing to himself are going to be saved. I like what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this. Somebody came up and talked to him, and he was talking about this exact thing, that this, the doctrine of election is the, 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 the fancy way to talk about this. And he said, it's easier to understand when you understand our slavery to sin. And so this woman came up. He was talking about uh, sovereignty of God in Romans 9. Gets to verse 13, which says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. This woman comes up to him, and she says, I don't understand how God could say that he hated Esau. And in typical Spurgeon fashion, he says, ma'am, I find it more difficult to understand how he could love Jacob. And the idea there that he's talking about is what we got into a little bit last week. That it is not fair that any of us would go to heaven. It is grace that anyone would go to heaven. And so Jesus is just giving us another page there to say, here's a little bit about how it happens. God draws. And I found this in one commentary. I found this to be very interesting. That the word that he uses here for draws is very interesting. John uses it later in the book, uh, chapter 21, to talk about the disciples when they were hauling in their nets filled with fish onto the deck of the boat. And the commentator points out, he said, like fish swimming in the murky waters of sin, we are graciously drawn to salvation by God. But the means he uses is not a net. It's the preaching of the gospel and the life-giving work of the Spirit. And he goes on to say that God ordains the ends, and that is that some would be saved, and he also ordains the means to accomplish his purpose. And, some, and he goes on to kind of anticipate what we would all potentially be thinking here, and he says, we could think wrongly that since God will draw the elect to salvation, we don't need to preach the gospel. But to say that would deny the clear command of Scripture and misunderstand the work of God. Just as God has ordained the result, he has also ordained the means. 
The way the elect come to Jesus is through the proclamation of the gospel. So this whole notion that God's sovereignty is at odds with human responsibility is a false dichotomy. They are both true. God has chosen and man is responsible. The gospel needs to get preached, has to get preached, will get preached, and God uses that to draw us into the proverbial boat just like fish in a net. So how do we respond to that? Well, probably several ways. If that's not really the position you hold, you're probably thinking about yours, and we could talk about that afterward, understand that. But I think the context in the way that Jesus offers it here is he is explaining to some degree why these people are not getting it and why they are antagonistic and hostile toward them, or toward him and his message. And he's explaining, like I said, the back end of how this happens. But also check this out here. Look back at that phrase at the end of 44. I started with that principle first because it was shorter and easier to understand. But the way he lays this out here, and you'll see this again in this passage, is it's for encouragement. The doctrine of election is shared for explanation, but it's also shared for encouragement. And if you look at how Paul talks about it, Ephesians 1, for example, there's other places, Romans 9, all kinds of places. And technically, if you want to look throughout the entirety of the Bible, start in the Old Testament where God has always had a people. The, the focus always leans toward encouragement and comfort and help for the Christian. God didn't just throw us this so that we could argue with other Christians about it. Like the way he put it together for us is to give us comfort and to explain some of what's happening. And I also find it just personally interesting that he keeps bringing up this business about the last day. So it's almost like there's the bookends of salvation, if you want to think about it. There's election and salvation, eternity past, so to speak. And then there's the preaching and responding to the gospel and eternity present, so to speak. And then in eternity future, this, he will raise him up on the last day. And so the last thing I want to say about that here before we move on is if you see God, giving that much care and that much attention and that much focus to your salvation and you see that he has secured it for you from start to finish and he's got it all worked out oh friends how can we not trust this god with everything else in our lives if he can settle the most important issue for us where we spend eternity surely we can trust him with our money, with our parenting, with our work life, with all the other pieces of life. Because if he can do that, he can surely do this. So let's hear this. Let's be encouraged. Let's get out there and share with everybody. Let's not argue about this. And let's keep the eye on the ball. Now, look at verse 45. Because Jesus does make this Old Testament connection here. That's one of the things I love about the Bible is the more you study it, the more you see how it fits together. He says, it is written in the prophets. So he's talking here, probably commentators think Isaiah 54, 13. Possible he could be talking about Jeremiah 31, but I think it's Isaiah. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. So really, 45 is kind of a continuation, and it's the other side of the coin from 44. He's talking about the drawing, and now he's talking about they've been taught by God. That's another way to say kind of the same thing. But I do think it's of paramount importance to understand, this is our fourth principle here, that Jesus is from the Father, and he has seen the Father, and is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Because remember their beef back in 41 and 42? Who does this guy think he is saying he's from God? I mean, you can just hear the disgust in their comment, right? And Jesus says, I'm exactly who I said I am. You guys don't know God, but I do. I've seen him myself. And the only one who gets to see him is the one who's been sent by him, and I know him. So he is again and again and again. I feel like this is in every passage that we've looked at up to this point. He is telling them over and over and over in a variety of ways from every possible angle that he is God. His ministry is authenticated. In all the different signs that he's given, in this authoritative teaching, and then now he's reiterating again, I am from God. I have seen the Father myself. And to build on that, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, so that's one of those, pay attention, it's very important, whoever believes has eternal life. And the belief that he's talking about here is belief in him. I am the bread of life. So he's beginning to restate what he said last week. And then he draws this analogy again that they would have noticed. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So again, this is the third time in this very short section of text. From heaven, it's me. God has sent me. And so that one may eat of it and not die. So what he's doing here, he's, he's, he's really drawing a contrast. He's saying, you guys, remember last week, you want to see this big miracle. You want to see me put on the show. You want to see me, you know, dunk on Moses. I can do this better than he did. You want to see that kind of miracle. But guess what? All those people that saw that miracle, they are dead. None of them are still alive. But here I am. And I'm going to take you beyond temporary bread that gives you temporary sustenance. I'm going to give you living bread that is going to give you sustenance forever. They ate that and they died. You eat this, you will not die. And that's exactly what he says. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give (coughs) for the life of the world is my flesh. So here's the principle. Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven who would give his flesh, his body, for the world. Now, Jesus is speaking in these (coughs) figurative ways, right? He did did not mean that literally, like, his flesh was going to turn into bread and they were going to, like, eat one of his fingers and walk away and, you know, be immortal, And that might make for a good sci-fi movie on a weird late-night channel, but that was not what Jesus was saying. (laughs) He was clearly speaking figuratively. And when he's talking about flesh here, he, he, he is talking about his body being given 
as a sacrifice, that it would be given so that we would believe. Now, there's some people, um, and, and I don't know how far this idea goes, but some people will point to this text and say, this is communion. This is not communion. He, he's talking about belief in him and speaking figuratively. Now, does this explain some of the symbolism of communion? I think it does. It does. Like that bread, it, it, it represents, it shows us this is like the body of Jesus, the juice. It's like the blood of Jesus, but, but it is not the same. And so when Jesus <coughs> is saying this, we need to make sure we understand it for what he is saying that it is and it isn't. And it's very sad to see what happens right here in verse 52. Look at it. Then the Jews <coughs> disputed against themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, I do not understand why they would think that he was legit preaching cannibalism to them in the midst. I don't understand that. Apart from looking back at verse 44, that clearly, at least at this moment, they were not being drawn to God. And so they were just speaking harshly, ridiculing, causing trouble with Jesus. That's what commentators seem to think. <laughs> and again, Jesus, very interestingly here, instead of trying to explain it to them, he doubles down on the hard thing. And I'm sure he had his reasons for that. Look at verse 53. It said, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. So again, that's one of those pay attention highlighter statements. <coughs> Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God, Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks, uh, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, notice the repetition. He's saying the same things over and over. He's highlighting the same ideas. That is not accidental because he is trying to make this point to them. <coughs> and then again, 57, another point that he's already made. As the living Father sent me, so there's the authority piece again, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So it's pretty clear to me what Jesus is saying here. And I think when you take it all together, it is exactly as I illuminated. He's the living bread that came down from heaven, and he gave his own flesh, his body, for the world. Now, let's talk about this a little bit more in the specific. When he talks about eating here, that's the spiritual trusting in Jesus. That's believing in him. That is what we would call responding to the gospel, becoming a Christian. And that is why it's so important for us to get out and to tell people about Jesus, because how are they going to know it any other way? I mean, looking at the sunset, as much as I love it, it does not, in, in its essence, communicate the gospel. That's something that has to be shared. That, that helps. It shows us that there's a creator and 
it's general revelation as they call it, but we need special revelation for people to be saved. And then on top of that, when you think you're about drinking his blood, it's the same idea. It's talking about trusting in his shed blood for our salvation. And when you think about all of the ways that bread meant something in that culture, it's really quite profound that he would use this imagery. James Boyce says it like this. He's talking about deeply partaking of himself. And then he talks about the notion of the centrality of bread in helping us survive. And he asks these questions. He says this. Is he as real to you spiritually as something you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do not think blasphemy of me when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is far more real and useful than those, the unfortunate reality is that for many people, he is much less. So let's think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I am the eternal sustenance that you need. But you have to receive it. You can't just believe that there's an eternal sustenance out there. You have to taste it and see that it's good. You have to eat of the flesh figuratively and drink of the blood figuratively. It's got to be as real to you as food. But as I looked at these other commentators, I, I thought it was really interesting to see how they pulled this idea of the bread because in that culture, it really underscored indispensability. Because you know what the primary source of sustenance was at this time in history? Bread. And he's saying, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven for you. I'm real. You can experience me. And then on top of that, you think about this idea of bread. You got to keep going back. You got to keep getting more. Now, we don't get saved over and over and over. It's a one-time thing. But we need to meet with Jesus regularly. We need to experience Jesus daily. We need to eat the living bread that never runs out. There's a great quote from Augustine. He's talking about just the nature of humanity. He makes this statement. He says, you made us for yourself. And our hearts find no peace until they find rest in you. One of my helpers this week said, let's take that idea, but let's uh, tweak it just a little bit. And they rewrote it like this in light of this context. They said, you have made us to hunger for you, and our starving souls find no nourishment until they feast on you. Friends, isn't that a powerful set of ideas? That whatever we're looking for in life, at the end of the day, there's no greater sustenance than Jesus himself. He is who we need for salvation. 
He is who we need for sanctification. He is who we need for every day to get through it. And I also think there's something about the heart of God that is on, this, on display in this passage. You remember where Jesus said he came from time and time again? He came from heaven. God sent me. God sent me. There's a great take that I found from a person named Joy Davidman writing in a book called Smoke on the Mountain, and she was commenting actually on the first commandment. That, of course, says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And she turned that around positively to make her point, and she said, Thou shalt have me. Think about that. He doesn't want us to fritter with all these other gods because we can have the real thing. God sent Jesus, the living bread, for you. So friends, as we think about everything that's in this passage, the fact that Jesus' work has always had, always will have detractors, the fact that no one comes to the Father unless Jesus draws him, the fact that people who trust in Jesus will be raised up on the last day, the fact that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, Let's not lose sight of the grace of God in the giving of his son, Jesus, so that we might be eternally fed and then daily fed. Oh, friends, where do you need to receive the grace of God tonight? For some of you, it could be to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You could be one of those people that God is talking about right here in verse 44. He could be drawing you to himself tonight through the preaching of the gospel. And if that catches fire in your heart in a surprising way, in just a minute when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you take Jesus. He will receive you no matter what you've done and where you've been. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in his perfect life, his substitutes death, his glorious resurrection from you. Turn from your sins, trust in him. He will welcome you tonight. And for those of us who've already made that turn, what's the Lord bubbling up from this text in your heart tonight? How is he challenging you? How is he comforting you? How is he helping you? And how is he reminding you? that he sent the living bread from heaven for you. How does he want that truth to help you tonight? Just take just a moment. Close in prayer. Open your heart. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you help us. We thank you most that you sent Jesus because apart from him, we are truly without hope in every way. Lord, I pray for men and women and boys and girls that need to put their faith in Christ tonight, that they would. I pray for the men and women and boys and girls that already have, that they would be strengthened and built up and encouraged in their faith in Christ tonight. Lord, that we would be mindful of the fact that no matter, no matter what happens today or tomorrow, 
we will be raised up on the last day. Lord, we thank you for the community that you've placed us in to encourage one another, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds all the more as we see the day approaching. We pray that you use this message toward that end tonight. In Jesus' name.